Hello, and welcome to the Blinkist Podcast. I'm Ben Schumann Stoller. If you're new to the Blinkist Podcast, hello, welcome, check it out. The idea is we go deep into the nonfiction book world, we talk to the authors, we get into the heads of the inspiring, the genius people, yeah, who write those books. Take big ideas and make them personal. Today in the podcast is Professor Daniel Schachter. He's a professor of psychology and has his own lab, actually, at Harvard University. And he also wrote uh, one of my favorite books on psychology, The Seven Sins of Memory, How the Mind Forgets and Remembers. So I think he's become one of the leading researchers on memory, actually. In the interview, we talk about uh, some of the leading research that Professor Schachter is doing about how memory actually changes the way we think about the future, which is crazy, and uh, how to not forget stuff, which is important, and why not forgetting stuff actually turns out to be not that awesome if you remember everything, which is surprising. We're still doing this voucher or coupon code experiment, so if you want some free Blinkist time, catch me at the outro. All right then, let's roll the tape. Thanks very much for making time for the Blinkist podcast. So I think the book, The Seven Sins of Memory, is like quite a readable book, but there's so much there. I thought that maybe we could just focus on the three omission sins, if that's cool with you. That's fine. Okay, so let's just start there. What are the three omission sins for the people who maybe haven't read the book? Uh, well, I call them transience, absent-mindedness, and blocking. And they're basically three kinds of forgetting. So as you alluded to, the book divides into uh, memory sins of omission and, and commission. Uh, commission involves memory distortion when memory is present but wrong. And omission involves different kinds of, uh, the sins of omission in, involves different kinds of forgetting. So transience would be forgetting that occurs with the passing of time. So memories tend to be or can be transient to one degree or another. Absent-mindedness refers to a breakdown at the interface of memory and attention. So when we forget to do something, not because it's faded out of memory, but either because we're not attending to what we need to, either when we uh, encode a memory or retrieve a memory. And then finally, blocking occurs when memory, uh, memory still exists. We're paying attention, hasn't faded out of our memories. We're trying to remember but we just can't get at information at the moment that we need it. So it would be kind of like a tip of the tongue state, if you will. Uh, the memory is is in there somewhere, but it's blocked from getting out. Right. So one question I had, for example, was, do you think it would be a superhero trait in a way to not have to, to never deal with any of those sins? I mean, if you could never forget anything, would that actually be good? Because I know that there's some stuff that comes towards the end of the book that these sins, there's a reason why we have these. That's right. Uh, the, the, there's a reason why we have these sins, and we can easily imagine, and there are nice examples to support it, that we wouldn't want to have every bit of information in memory available to us or coming to mind at every moment, because there would be a lot. There are a lot of things we don't want to or don't need to remember at. A particular time, in fact, most things. So if we remembered everything and we really couldn't control the output of memory and we had willy-nilly memories coming uh, to mind all the time, that could be a very, very, uh, a very bad thing. 
And in fact, there are examples of that. There was a, a famous example who I talked about at the end of the book of a, a nemonist by the name of Sharashevsky, who could commit to memory virtually anything that he wanted to by using various kinds of memory strategies, but he really couldn't control his memories and his mind was kind of polluted, if you will, with irrelevant memories that he, he couldn't keep out of his mind and that actually impaired his ability uh, to function. Now, it, it need not be the case that having uh, a quote-unquote good memory or, or a seemingly greater uh, capacity uh, to remember than we ordinarily do is always a bad thing. Uh, for example, there are some folks who have uh, come to pretty widespread attention recently as, since I wrote the book who have a very high level of memory for personal experiences. So Sharashevsky, who I just mentioned, was someone who could commit all kinds of trivial information to memory. Uh, if there were to be a memory competition, for example, he could out-memorize anybody else. Mm. These people are not like that. They tend to just have very good memory for their personal experiences. And they've come to be referred to as highly superior autobiographical memory syndrome, or HSAM. And people may have seen them. There have been a couple of 60 Minutes uh, episodes that have featured these folks. And you can ask them just about any particular episode that has uh, occurred to them in their lives. You know, what happened to you on December 17th, 1997? And relatively quickly, they can usually tell you at least something about what happened, which is what most of us, uh, uh, most of us can't do that. Right. And um, there doesn't seem to be a very obvious downside to, to the kind of memory that they have. Um, it's something they seem to enjoy and something that may occur in part because they're just very into their own memories and think about them a lot and rehearse them a lot. Right. But are there side effects to that? Well, there's not a, you know, a crippling side effect. Most of these people are functioning in a, in a pretty uh, normal way, but they may be spending a lot more time thinking about their personal memories than most, most of us would. Right. Okay, slight pivot here. Which of the three sins of omission do you think is the most dangerous? I think uh, easily the most dangerous is absent-mindedness. So absent-mindedness is a breakdown at the interface of attention and memory, and so, for example, absent-minded memory errors may occur because we don't really focus on incoming information and encode it in a way that we could later retrieve it. Or absent-minded memory errors can occur at the time when we need to remember something, but our attention is focused elsewhere. And so we don't even realize that we need to remember. And when we're in that state, we're vulnerable to forgetting almost anything, to do almost anything, and including very important things. So there's an example uh, in the book that of, of a musician who was charged with uh, the responsibility for looking after a very expensive Stradivarius uh, violin, and he put it on top of his car and turned to talk to somebody, and then just forgot that he had done that, uh, forgotten Presumably, if you had asked him, asked him, where did you put your violin? He would say, oh, I just put it on the car. But he didn't remember to remember. And he went off and uh, without this priceless Stradivarius, which turned up then, I think, months or years later, was eventually recovered. 
a more uh, tragic expression of this of this kind of this very same kind of absent-mindedness when you don't realize that you need to remember, you're not cued to remember at the moment you need it, has to do with uh, the the very sad phenomenon of parents, well-intentioned parents, forgetting that they have an infant in their car and leaving that infant in their car, uh, and in some cases in very hot conditions that results in uh, the death of the infant. It's I I just had a I just had my first kid in December. And I, in the weeks leading up to the birth, I was having nightmares about this actually. But I can thankfully report that um, I have not, for, I have not yet forgotten my kid at all. So that's good. Those are like terrifying, much it more, is, much more terrifying than the old "I left my glasses on top of my forehead" story. Exactly, but it stems from more or less the same, uh, you know, the same basic processes, just operating where the stakes are are much higher and. And the good thing about it is that simply being aware of the possibility that something like this can occur is possibly the, you know, the best preventative medicine. And in fact, some people who have, you know, sort of high level, high functioning uh, professional parents who have had to experience this, you know, I think have gotten behind the idea of putting a reminder putting something, you know, related to the child, you know, on your uh, hanging off your front nurse, something to remind you that uh, the child is there. Because, again, it almost seems absurd to think that you could forget that the child is there, but it happens. And it happens on an infrequent but regular basis every year. So awareness that it can happen and taking preemptive steps is, is uh, an effective solution. You also have a few other solutions again, or uh, ways to fight <laughs> fight absent-mindedness as if it's like a bad guy. Um, one thing that I thought uh, that stuck with me was this idea, the way it relates to cognitive resources. I mean, cognitive resources is something I've heard other authors talk about on this podcast when it comes to focus, for example, and eliminating distraction and operating at a high level whether in athletics or in work or in solving mathematical problems or what have you. And I didn't know that actually, that sort of availability of cognitive resources can also lead to absent-mindedness. I mean, you, you discuss operating on automatic, I guess. Yes. And I'd love to hear, can you give some more examples of operating on automatic that, that we should all sort of look out, look out for and how we fight that off? Well, it's a tr it's a tricky thing because operating on automatic with respect to the thing you forget. For example, the trivial examples we all know and you alluded to already would be you know I put my glasses down, I'm not paying attention to that, or I I put my keys down and then suddenly where are my glasses? Where are my keys? I was operating on automatic when I carried out the action of putting them down. For example, in some un un unusual place. Mm -hmm. But the reason I may have been operating on automatic with respect to that particular action is because maybe I was absorbed in thinking about the idea for a new experiment, and I'm thinking about that, and I'm not thinking about the other thing. So it's not as if these absent-minded errors result because we're operating, you know, like a zombie. Mm -hmm. It's that the critical notion is, is kind of what you alluded to before, that there are limitations on cognitive resources. And if we've got all our cognitive resources focused on something that may be very important, then something that at the moment would seem less important, like automatically 
uh, putting my glasses down or keys down can then end up being very irritating. So one way to try to get around that is to, for example, for keys and glasses in your home or uh, your office to have a, a very regular spot where that's the only place that that you put those things. Hmm. And again, that's not going to be 100% uh, foolproof in preventing you from, if you're very absorbed in something else, from doing it without awareness. But if you get into the habit of that, I've tried that and it's it's worked for me over the years because I am naturally somewhat prone to uh, absent-mindedness to try to have a particular spot for things like keys and glasses that I'm prone to just uh, putting down without thinking about it. Hmm. And and another part of this is um, encoding, right? Making sure that something is encoded properly. Yes. So how do we do that? Yeah, encoding is very fundamental aspect of memory, and it really has an impact on uh, in one way or the other on all of these seven sins that I talk about. And the fundamental idea behind encoding is that memory is not me- memory is something that very much depends on how we think about our a current situation and the extent to which we sort of activate things that are already in memory, bring knowledge to bear on thinking about a new situation. So we know, for example, from uh, years and years of laboratory experiments that if I do a really simple experiment and I show you a bunch of words to remember, the likelihood that you'll later remember those words on a test can vary from near 100% to close to zero, depending on how you encode those items in the couple of seconds that it takes to think about them or encode them. So for example... If I say, okay, I want you to remember this word, and uh, the word is democracy, and I say, now think about, does democracy refer to an abstract or concrete concept? That gets you thinking about the meaning of the word, linking it up to other things you know, and with that kind of encoding task, there's a very good chance that later on you'll remember that I asked you to remember the word democracy. Hmm. If on the other hand, I say, well, are there more vowels than consonants? in the word democracy. That results in a very low level or superficial kind of encoding of the information. And there's a very good chance you won't remember it at, a, at all later on. So the, the take home message for everyday life is that when you know there's something you want to remember, it might be something that somebody tells you, a, a new fact that you find interesting or an appointment that you wanna keep, what you wanna try to do is elaborate on that information. Try to relate it to other things you know. Try to ask yourself questions about the information. How much do I like this? Uh, How does this relate to other things that I know about? The very act of elaborating on the information, linking it up with other things in memory, is one of the most powerful tools we have to encode information at a deep level and boost the probability of remembering it uh, later on. That's great. So you mentioned that Memory has a lot to do with how we think about our current situation. Yes. But uh, you told me before we started the interview that you're working on how memory affects the future. That's right. Yeah, we tend to think of memory as being all about the past, remembering the past. But one of the things we've learned from research in my lab and others, mostly over the past decade or so, is that remembering the past has a lot in common with imagining the future. So when we imagine a future experience, 
it turns out that we activate many of the exact same brain regions that come online when we remember a past experience. And we think that's because, in fact, we're using memory, we're taking bits and pieces of memory to project into the future. And when we think about the future, we're very much relying on memory because a useful memory system is one that allows us to take our past experiences, recombine them, and simulate upcoming situations that might occur to us. That's a very valuable thing to be able to do, to use our past experience to imagine how new situations or similar situations might play out. So even though we tend to think of memory as something uh, that allows us to go backwards in time, we've become very interested in how it allows us to use the past to project forwards in time into the future and engage in important cognitive functions like planning, for example. So we've just become a lot more interested in how memory shapes future thinking. Do you have enough time to tell me about one experiment you guys have done on this? Yeah. Um, so, for example, one of the early experiments uh, we did on this was uh, uh, using functional brain imaging, functional MRI, functional magnetic uh, resonance imaging, where we can put people in the scanner, and this is a very simple experiment. We give them uh, a cue word. It could be just about anything. For example, the word table. And in one condition, we ask them to remember a past experience related to a table. In another condition, we'd ask them to project into the future and imagine uh, an experience uh, related to, the, to a table. And in still a third condition, a control condition, uh, we would ask them to make a judgment about what a table is. And the striking finding was that there are certain parts of the brain uh, that we know are involved in memory. Uh, the hippocampus is one of them. Parts of the frontal lobe uh, are, are others. There's a whole network of regions that come online when we remember past experiences. And what we saw very strikingly is that it's pretty much the same regions that came online when we asked people to imagine a future experience mm -hmm. and remember a past experience compared to the uh, control task. We've done other experiments where we've seen in that older adults, let's say people in their 70s and 80s, we know tend to have problems remembering details of specific past experiences. That's a very well-established finding that as we get older, we may remember the gist of what happened, but we tend to lose out on some of the specific details. Uh, we also did experiments showing that with older adults, when you ask them to imagine in the future, uh, they also imagine the future with less detail hmm. than do younger adults uh, in a way that parallels uh, how they remember the past with less detail. And this can have an impact on things like planning and problem solving, this uh, reduced ability to imagine the, the details of, of future experiences. So we've come at it in a few different ways through brain imaging studies, studies of aging, and, and studies of uh, healthy young adults as well. It sounds like it's going to have some really interesting implications, though, just in terms of how we all how we all think of memory. Are, are you writing another book or planning to collect all that info somewhere? I'm I'm hoping to put together a, a book eventually on this uh, this topic because we've been writing I've been writing a lot of articles about it. Um, nothing immediately planned. Most of my current book writing uh, is tied up with a an introductory psychology text uh, which I've co-authored for the the past few years. So what 
what time I have for book writing right now is going into that. But eventually, I do hope to pull all this work together on, on memory in the future and put it into a, a book form. Cool. Well, we'll keep an eye out for it. And hopefully, we can do this uh, when that new book comes out also. Okay. I'll look forward to it. Great. Well, thanks a lot. Enjoy the rest of the day. Okay. You too. Thanks for listening to the Blinkist podcast. This episode was produced by me, Ben Schumann-Stoller, and Odie Constantino, who's working on a technology to make audio content searchable. And actually, that one's not a joke. So email us at podcast.blinkist.com if you want to discuss uh, Odie's ideas about that. Oh, and lest I forget, go to Blinkist.com slash friends and put in voucher code MEMORY to get a few free weeks of Blinkist. We'll be back with more fun podcasts just a short while, I promise. In the meantime, be good. This is Ben checking out. Thank you.